I got a sign. She walked over to a shelf and pulled off a small glass box. And inside this small glass box was an angel, or what we normally consider an angel, what an angel would look like, a little figurine. And she began recounting to me about leaving the doctor's office, receiving some bad news. And as she was leaving the doctor's office, a lady came up out of nowhere and gave her this little glass box with an angel inside it. And along with the angel, there was a little card that talked about this angel being her angel of healing. Now, this lady was no New Age mystic. Matter of fact, she wasn't even Pentecostal. She was my Southern Baptist grandmother. Very, very conservative. She actually, at one time, rejected the notion of Christmas trees because she said it was pagan idolatry. Now, she later recanted of that. She's a very committed Christian who clearly understood the gospel and the grace of God, who lives under the authority of Christ as her Lord and King. But on this day, my granddad had been diagnosed with lung cancer, and this was their first doctor's appointment. And she had been desperately praying that God would heal my granddad, desperately praying for their situation. And she was looking for a sign of hope. And without knowing it, she embraced the exact same kind of spirituality that the Colossians embraced. The people of Colossae were very, very spiritual. And they believed in all kinds of spirits. We even see in the, in the book of Acts chapter 19, this mystical spiritualism that, that happened in Ephesus was also a part of the culture in Colossae. But they looked to angels for protection. They worshipped angels for knowledge. And what eventually happened in the church of Colossae is believers began to mix this angel worship and the gospel. And before long, Jesus became just like another angel. He became just another emanation of God, like a spirit that's out there. And then the Jews that were in the church, they added their law to this spirituality. And so you, you begin to obey the law to move up in levels of spirituality that were accompanied by angel worship. And it was this mixture of all kinds of spiritualism, all kinds of religion, all kinds of law, rule mixed together. And before long, Jesus was just another rung on the ladder. He was just another spirit that you must climb to please God. And yet Paul writes to this group of believers to say, Jesus is not just another emanation of God. He is God's son. And Jesus isn't just some spiritual force. He is God's chosen king. And he is supreme. And he is sufficient. 
He is the creator of all things. He's not an idol that you create. He is the exalted king above everything that is seen and everything that is unseen. Every force that is out there must surrender and bow to King Jesus. And he is the source of all wisdom. And he is sufficient. He is all you need. He has fulfilled the law for you. You can't do it yourself. And these are themes that we're going to uncover as we move through the book of Colossae. But the point is, you don't need an angel of healing when you have Jesus Christ, God's King. He is supreme and he is sufficient. And Paul teaches us this beginning in verse 1 of this book. Notice Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice the way Paul even describes himself as he exalts Christ as supreme. He is an apostle, why? By the will of God, but he represents Christ Jesus, King Jesus, the King who is a Savior. Remember, Paul is this before Acts chapter 9, Paul was this false teacher. And in Acts chapter 9, he is headed out on behalf of Judaism. He is a Judaizer that says, you can believe in Christ, but you need to add the law to it. And now we have Christians who are preaching, no, it's just Jesus. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, is out to kill Christians. There were believers who were stoned in the name of Paul. And then on the Damascus road, Jesus blinds him. Jesus saves him. And then Jesus uses him, Paul says here, as an apostle. Apostles were sent out to establish the church in the gospel. Before we have the Bible, churches need to know what are we supposed to believe? How are we supposed to function? And the apostles built a foundation for the church. And here is Paul. One who once murdered Christians, who is now an apostle representing Jesus Christ to the churches by the sovereign will of God. But as Paul writes this letter, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He has been sent to Rome on a prison ship for proclaiming the gospel. And a man named Epaphras that we see in our text traveled to Paul, a pastor from Colossae, Asking Paul about all of this heresy, about all of the spiritualism that's in Colossae. And Paul writes this letter, sends it back with Epaphras to the church in Colossae. But notice he also mentions Timothy. Now, we don't know if Timothy was with Paul in prison here. It's probable that Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, is just a consultant to these churches. And Paul is saying, he represents me as he mentors your pastor, as he leads. He represents me and everything this letter contains. But notice he writes to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. This word saints that's in so many of Paul's letters, it means holy ones. And if you are a Christian, you are a saint. You have been set apart to Christ. And here he writes to the faithful brothers in Christ, in Colossae, the pastors who are leading the church there. One of the things we need to know about Colossae was it was probably the most unimportant town that a letter in the New Testament was written to. Colossae was off the beaten path. And as commercialism moved, 
Colossae was kind of left out. And so the believers out in Colossae, they're kind of the rural folks, the small town folks who are in the small country church to the, uh, on the outskirts of the city. And this is who Paul is writing to. But notice how he begins addressing them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, a lot of times we see these introductions, these greetings in letters, and we kind of move past them. This is just, this is just the way to say, dear church. And yet Paul is making such a statement here as he talks about grace and peace. Because what we're going to see throughout the book of Colossians is that you can't have grace if Jesus isn't supreme. If he's not king. He is the only one who has died for sins. He is the only one who has lived a perfect life. And so you can only have grace in Christ. And you can only have peace with God in Christ. The one who has endured the hostility of God's wrath for you on the cross. The one who has taken the brunt of God's anger and fury against your sin. And no longer is there a war between you and God raging. There is shalom. There is peace. But how does it happen? In Christ. And what culminates this grace in peace in Christ? Notice he says, from God our Father. Through grace and peace, Jesus' Father becomes your Father, and He becomes our Father. And it is through, it is, it is through His name, it, it is under the banner of this gospel of grace and peace that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, to the Colossians, sorry. But notice first, we see as we begin to verse 3, the supremacy of Christ leads to love. As Paul's writing to these believers, notice what he says, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Emphasizing again, through grace and peace, Jesus' Father has become your Father in Jesus Christ. And he says, we thank God for you. We, we thank the Father for you when we pray for you. Why? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, first of all, what we see in this section as Paul is thanking the Father for this church him and Timothy and his brothers who are preaching the gospel. And now Paul's in prison and he's praying for this church. And they're talking about what God's doing in Colossae. He says, we thank God. Why? Because your faith has led to love. Notice as we move through the text, he says here, we thank God since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. We heard of how the gospel came to you and it was delivered to you and you turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ alone. Your faith, we have heard about your faith. Faith is our confidence. It is our reliance on Christ alone. His life, His death alone as payment for our sin and righteousness before God. Full confidence in Christ. We have heard of how you're trusting in Christ. But notice how faith here is tied to love. Not only have we heard of your faith, we also heard of your love. 
And we talk about the definition of love around here a lot. And it is a commitment to another person's good no matter what it costs you. And and Paul is saying, when you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel, what came along with your faith was love. You turned from the supremacy of self, trusting in yourself, to the supremacy of Christ, and that freed you up to love others. Essential in your faith when you say, I'm going to follow after Christ will be your love for others. But notice he says, your love for the saints, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the things Jesus teaches us is that a marker of true disciples and a marker of a true church, saints, those set apart to him will be their love for one another. And so Paul stands back and says, I can see the gospel because you have trusted in Christ and it has led to love. But notice what it causes. Verse five, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so when the gospel comes in, Christ is exalted as king and Lord over sin and death. And those who believe in him, they are also promised eternal life. Notice he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. What is laid up for the believer in heaven? It is an inheritance. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Our inheritance in Christ is his kingdom where there is no sin and there is no death forever. And Paul says, when you believe the gospel, you are granted that inheritance. And if we look at the text, this is also what caused you to love. And so you believe in Christ, you're granted the inheritance, and this is what causes love. But notice he continues in verse 6 which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you. Here Paul points to the fruit of this gospel of the supremacy of Christ. It is coming to you. You're believing it and you're loving. It is giving you hope and you are loving. And this is continuing to multiply throughout the whole known world. It is the gospel of God's grace which you have heard in truth. God is doing this through the gospel, the gospel of grace. Now look at that phrase there, the grace of God in truth. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor toward us despite what we deserve. For your sin, you deserve hell. For your sin, you deserve God's judgment. And yet the gospel is that you can get grace as we just talked about because of what Christ has done for us. And Paul says, as you are hearing this and as you are believing this, you are hoping and you are loving. And notice Epaphroditus, the beloved servant, the faithful minister on their behalf is the one who is making this known to them. Now, as we take that whole section there that we just kind of moved through, the emphasis here is that saving faith in the supremacy of Christ in the gospel always leads to love. We first of all see faith comes with love. And then we see here hope causes love. And if you are a believer in Christ, as with the Colossae's, it will be evident that you are loving. Why is that? When you believe in the gospel, Jesus replaces you as king. You're not sovereign. You're not king. And you are sinful. You can't save yourself. 
And at the heart of saving faith is you saying, I can't be supreme. I can't save myself. And Jesus replaces you. And what does that do? It frees you up to love others. You you can't serve yourself and serve Jesus at the same time. Saving faith says, no, Jesus is my king. Jesus is the only one who has died and rose again. Jesus is the only one who is reigning at the right hand of God. And so he replaces me as king. And so then you are free to love others. And then the hope that he mentioned here, the hope of heaven replaces everything else you think you need in this life. It is laid up for you in an inheritance, a kingdom where there is no sin and death. And so Jesus replaces you as king, and then heaven replaces everything else that you clamor for in this life. And so once again, you're free to love. Jesus is your king. Heaven is sufficient. And so you are free because of his kingdom and the hope in his kingdom to love others unconditionally. And so ask yourself the question, in all of your relationships right now, where there is struggle and where there is tension, who is king? Who is king? And ask yourself, in all of those situations where you are hoarding to yourself, And you don't want to give up time. You don't want to give up energy. You want things to be easy for you. You want things to be comfortable comfortable for you. Ask yourself the question, is heaven not enough? You're, You're clinging to the throne of that situation. I've got to be king. I've got to have people look and act and do what I want to do. Think about your home. You walk in, who is king? No, You've got to speak to me a certain way. You've got to clean the house a certain way. Things have got to be ordered just the way that I want so I can be king. Who is king in your home? If you're trying to be king, you will not be able, by the power of the Spirit and the gospel as we see here, to love others. And in those situations where you're saying, I just don't have any more to give, I just don't have any more time. I just don't have any more energy. I just don't have any more resources. Ask yourself the question, is heaven not enough? Is the time you will spend in heaven not enough to replace any time you lose now? I just don't have, I don't have any more time to serve Jesus. I don't have any more time to give. Well, you have all eternity if you are in Christ. You have all the time you could possibly need. To serve others. And so we see here, faith comes with love. And then we see hope. Hope in Christ who is sufficient. Hope in his kingdom causes us to love. But notice the text continues in verse 9. Paul continues to talk about what they've heard from Epaphras. Concerning their faith, their love, and their hope. And we've seen the supremacy of Christ leads to love. And here we see the supremacy of Christ leads to holiness. Not only has he heard about their faith, their love, and their hope. Here Paul, in his prayers, as he's thanking God, he begins to pray for their holiness. Notice verse 9. As we are thinking and praying about your conversion. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We... we, 
heard of your conversion, and so we immediately started praying for you. And what was our prayer for you? We were asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The word filled here in this verse, verse 9, it means to be completed. And notice what they are completed with. The knowledge, which is also the experience of his will. What is his will? His desired plan and purpose. And Paul says, you believe the gospel. I want you to continue to live a certain way. Well, how do I want you to live? According to his will. How do you know how to live according to his will? You have to have wisdom of his will. You have to have understanding of his will. And this is what I am praying for in your life. Not just that you would believe the gospel, but you would be completed by experiencing the gospel in your life. And so you need spiritual wisdom and you need understanding to know what God's will is. I'm praying you would know God's will. Now, so often we think about God's will for our life and we immediately put our self at the center of that question. We say, God, what is your will for my life? And we usually think, where am I supposed to go to school? Who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to have? What am I supposed to do with my money? And we think, what is your will for my life? Well, the book of Colossians is very clear about God's will. And his will is that Jesus would be exalted as the supreme king of heaven and earth forever. That is God's will. That Jesus would be exalted as the one who rules and reigns in heaven and earth. And so you got to start there. We all know God's will and it will happen no matter what. He has ordained the universe that at the end of the day, Jesus will be ruling and reigning forever. And so Paul says, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand God's will. You have believed him as king who will save you from your sins. I want you to experience his will in your life by living, living as if he is supreme and king because that's God's will is that Jesus would be exalted, that Jesus would be displayed as his exalted king. And this word knowledge here means I want you to experience this. And what does that look like? Notice verse 10. If you believe Jesus is king and you're surrendering to his will, notice what this results as in your life. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and then increasing in the knowledge of God, increasing even more in his will. But notice, if you believe in the will of God that Jesus is king, notice what it results in, first of all, that you live a life worthy. It means when you hold up the scales of your life in front of you, And you put Jesus over here, and he has more gravity, and he has more weight. He is supreme king. He is full authority. And then everything that you do with your life, it is done to match his worth. You live a life. Your life displays the worth of Christ on the scales. If you believe he's king, that's the way you're going to live. I want him, I want to display his worth and you're going to walk in a manner worthy. You're going to live out the pattern of your life will show the value of Christ. But notice he says, 
fully pleasing him, utterly, completely pleasing Christ. Now, the terminology there comes from the idea of bringing no shame to him. If you believe he is king and you believe he is supreme, the desire of your life is to never bring shame upon his name. And Paul says, that's what I'm praying for you, that you would experience of life that is worthy of his name and that brings no shame to his name. But then he says, bearing fruit with every good work, your life leads, this life that is worthy, this life that is pleasing, it leads to longing for others, just as the believers in Colossae have believed, they're hoping, and, and, and they have faith, and they're trusting in Christ, and they're loving one another. He says, you will long to see that happen all over the place, and, and you will begin to serve others so that they begin to love and serve and trust Christ. Your life will be given over to see that others treasure Christ. And then as you're doing this, he adds this phrase again, increasing in the knowledge of God. And this goes back to his will, increasing in the knowledge that Jesus is king. One of the points Paul is making in this section is that you really don't know something until you've done it, until you've lived it. When if you've played on a team or you're a coach here today, you know that You usually begin the season, whatever sport you're playing, and you begin to teach the team fundamentals and skills, and and then you work on those things, and then eventually you start running plays. What are these things going to look like in the game? And you run a certain amount of plays, and then the team begins to get those plays, and then you add plays and options to those plays, and you begin to rehearse this over and over, the skills, the plays, and then you get a game plan. But you don't know if the team really knows what they're doing until the game, until it's lived out. And then after you play the game, you go back and you say, you really didn't know how to do this. Let's go back to the basics. And then the next week of practice is the same way. And you build on it and you build on it and build on it. What Paul is saying here is, I'm praying that you would live a life that it would really experience the authority and power and supremacy of Christ because you really don't believe he's king until you've lived it out, until you begin to experience it daily. Until you get up in the morning tomorrow and you say, Jesus is king, so I'm going to get in the word of God and I'm going to pray before him. Uh, Until you get to the end of your day and you say, I did a lot of things great today and I sinned a lot today, but Jesus is still king. And so I'm going to go to him in the gospel for forgiveness and grace once again today. And Paul says, day after day, you are running that game plan that Jesus is king and you are experiencing his authority. And he says, I want you to know that. And I want you to experience that as a Christian. You've got to believe he is king, but you really don't know it until you begin to live like it. And so we come in here today and there's all kinds of issues of sin in the room. And and a lot of us think about repentance and we think about holiness and we think about obedience and it's this abstract, distant, do this, don't do this. And, and, And that sounds like drudgery and that sounds like torture to us today. Even the word holiness, even the words obedience, Those things are on hard times in our culture. You begin to say those things and you're accused of a legalist. 
You're, you're, you're accused of some, being some judgmental curmudgeon. But Paul puts it in the context of this. Do you honestly believe that Jesus is supreme? Do you honestly believe that he is the authority in heaven and on earth? Because if you do, no one's going to have to twist your arm to live a life worthy of him. And so if you're here today and there's sin in your life, and you know there's things in your life that you're not turning from to turn to Jesus, the question for you is not, am I going to do something? Am I going to dig in and find some grit inside of me? It's, are you going to believe Jesus is king and supreme, and are you going to experience that by following him? And so what is it in your life? That issue of disobedience that's just out there. That issue of unrepentant sin. The question for you is, is he worthy? Is he worthy of the obedience? Is he worthy of the repentance? Paul says here, you should long to live a life that pleases him. And that's the issue. When we come to our lives and we think about our marriages, we think about our private life when no one else is around. By the way, Jesus is there. And the question is, do you want to please him in that moment? Do you want to please him or yourself in that moment? Who is the one you're seeking to honor in that moment? Is Jesus not worthy? You see, a lot of times, and this is the issue with so many Christians today, the word of God is just another opinion. Jesus is just another spiritual advisor. He's not authoritative king who has saved your soul from sin and death and hell. And if you really believe that in those moments of obedience, in those moments of repentance, in those moments where that sin creeps in and you say, no, Jesus is my king. He is worthy and I want to honor him. And the more you live like that, you want to see this fruit that he talks about here in the life of others. And you begin to serve others and you're on mission for others because you want others to treasure him. You want him exalted in the life of others. And so are you ordering your life to see others treasure Christ? Well, the question there is, is he worthy? Is he worthy? You know the reason? It's just this simple. We don't obey. We don't repent of sin. We don't want to please him. It's just this simple. We don't believe he's king. And we don't share the gospel. And we don't bring him up in difficult, awkward situations because we don't believe he's king. We're not experiencing his will in those moments. You want to really feel the joy of the kingdom. Obey him. You want to really feel what it means to experience the supremacy of Christ. Turn from that sin and seek to please him. You want to really feel the joy of the authority of heaven. Begin to act like he's king and declare that he's king and plead with others to see him as king. Notice Paul says, as we do this, verse 11, we begin to experience joyful perseverance. Notice verse 11. He says, as you do this, you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, the thing we're going to see in Colossians is that the strength and the power that he's talking about here, notice he says, his glorious might. And it is his glorious might in the gospel. It's not our might. 
The, the, the way that you are strengthened to live a life pleasing to God is the gospel. You go back to the gospel and you see his power over sin and death and you trust him more. And this happens day in and day out. You trust him more. You trust his power more. You trust his promises in the gospel more. And what does this lead to? He says, for all endurance and patience with joy. The word for endurance here, it means to stand. It means to remain. The word for patience here, it's long-suffering. It means we are short-tempered. Very simply, it means we're not freaking out. And how are we able to stand for Christ? We believe the gospel. He's back from the dead. He's a former corpse, ruling and reigning. We can't lose. Why aren't we freaking out? Because Jesus is at the right hand of God, and he's ruling and he's reigning. And so we're not losing our temper. We're not outraged. We're not freaking out. But notice he says, with joy. The, the person who genuinely believes that Jesus is king will have joy. And the word here is contentment. We learned about this in the book of James. We are content in suffering because we believe God is making us like Christ. But know how, notice how this works. We trust Jesus is king. We live as though Jesus is king. And our faith is strengthened and we're able to endure. It is a continual process where we experience that day in and day out. You want to know why you come to certain situations and you just don't push through them? You give up. You lose hope. You, you want to know why you freak out? It's because you haven't continually been living under the authority of Christ to that moment and you don't believe it in that moment. And he says you can have contentment if you believe Jesus is king. But notice what this leads to, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. Notice what he's talking about when, he, when he's talking about endurance and patience. It's not just some grin and bear it. it it's, it's expression of joy. I'm content in the gospel. And so no matter what I face, look at the text. He says you can give thanks to God. No matter what you face, you can stop and say, thank you, God, my Father. Why? Notice who has qualified us. And what's interesting about this word is it is to be made sufficient. He has made us sufficient to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What, what he's saying here is he has qualified us to be co-rulers with Jesus. He has given us Jesus' payment for our sin and Jesus' righteousness so that we are sons and daughters in the Son. And this inheritance, this kingdom, we will rule and reign forever. And notice that phrase there. He says, saints in light. Well, this is where we live. Is that the Father in Christ has given us a kingdom. You live with that light. And you live in a world full of darkness. There's sin. There's death. There's despair. And you don't want to endure. And you don't want to be patient. And you can't find joy. And you don't want to thank God. But the light of the gospel has shone through and you can see things differently. You can see a king at the right hand of God who's going to rule and reign and make everything new. And then you begin to live in that light. And so what does that cause you to do? Press forward with endurance. To be patient and wait for the kingdom. To be content no matter what you're facing. And to stop and thank God, I get to go to heaven. When all of this is over, I have eternity under the rule of God. And so you can always thank God. 
And so we persevere with joy when we see the world through the light of the gospel, which displays Christ. You know, it seems very Christian these days to be outraged about something all the time. I got to be mad at somebody. I've got to lose my temper about something. It, It seems very spiritual these days to just despair all the time. Things are just so bad, so horrible. I just can't believe it. And and that seemed like we're convinced during these days that that's the Christian thing to do. And it could not be more anti-Christ. We're convinced that to be downcast is to be real and authentic. Well, the most real and authentic thing in the universe for the Christian is that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that Jesus is ruling and reigning at God's right hand. What do you have to be outraged about? What do you have to be depressed and downcast about? Jesus is a former corpse who will rule and reign forever. And so you can stop no matter what you're facing and thank God for that. As earth's stock continues to plummet, you can say, yes, but Jesus is still king. As sin and death seem to swirl all about like a monster that's going to destroy you, you can stand in the middle of that and thank God for the kingdom of Christ that will make all things new. And by the way, grumbling and complaining does not Give the gospel credibility in your life. Whining and being outraged does not make much of Jesus. It actually minimizes Jesus. And the way I like to say it is you're acting like a loser. You're acting like you lost something. If you are in Christ, you can't have the kingdom of God taken away from you. And so you can stop and say, Oh, the economy's crashing. Whatever economics. It's just horrible. But you stop and you go, thank God. I have more than the U.S. economy in my stock. And you stop and you thank God that I don't have to win this fight or win this or win this. And even when I lose, by the way, Jesus lost it one time, but he got back from the dead. He's raised from the dead. He's ruling and reigning. And so I'm not mad. I'm not angry. You can always stop and say, I've got way, I expected certain things in this life that didn't happen and I want more from this life. But guess what? I have eternity. And Jesus is going to give me way more than I ever expected from this life. I didn't even know what I wanted. And Jesus is going to blow my mind forever with things I, I'm thinking, I didn't even expect that. I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know that was a reality. And so you can always stop and be thankful. And he says, this is how we push forward. So whatever struggle you're facing right now, if Jesus is supreme, you have more than you could ever hope or dream for. And yeah, like my grandmother, sometimes life tries to convince us that Jesus isn't enough. Sometimes life is that hard. Sometimes life is that kind of reality. And we want a sign of hope. And yet we have a cross and an empty tomb. 
And we have the good news that Jesus is no angel in a glass box. He is God's king of heaven and earth.